Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Suncast, episode 67. You know, Microtron is one of the companies that's working on a technology to, you know, basically have vehicles that can be charged in two or three minutes. What? And, uh, and, and I think that's, <laughs> it's possible. You mean 120 seconds? Yes, yes. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 67 of Suncast Solar Warriors. I'm glad you're back. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am stoked that you're here again for another episode. I hope that you learned a lot from this week's Suncast soundbite guest, Mark McClanahan of MaxGen Energy Services. I got some great feedback already, and I'm glad to hear that some of you at least found it very informative and even fun. Hey, do you like these shorter episodes? Are they helpful? Sound off on the blog or over on LinkedIn. And if you do like these episodes, would you please consider sharing it in your network with your tribe or subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or coming soon even Spotify. Hey, today on Suncast, we are going to continue down our path of the solar and storage series with an industry executive who has spent quite a bit of time running power conditioning companies. Names that you've heard of like Xantrex, Advanced Energy, First Solar, and Eaton. Chris Thompson has seen it all when it comes to the control systems that are being implemented in today's advanced energy architecture. And he is here today to talk all about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Listen, as we discuss how Xantrex pivoted their power business post-Enron and a GE acquisition. Key differences between the solar and storage markets. How solar will benefit from the electrification of the automobile industry. And even what you should be thinking about if you're going to add storage to your commercial solar offering. We go deep and we even get a little nerdy. But I learned a lot about Chris and his work to bring storage and power electronics innovations to market and to scale. And I hope that you do, too. As always, if there's a topic or expert you think should be on Suncast, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. It really is simple. That website is mysuncast.com. Emails nico at mysuncast.com. And before we get into the interview, I just wanted to mention that I'll be at GTM's Mexico Solar Summit. February 13th and 14th in Mexico City. If you're going to be there, I'd love to meet you. And hey, Alliant Energy will be there too. So you'll have a chance to learn more about their innovative, fully ballasted solar tracker that's at home in the harshest environments, including the hard pan of the Mexico Altiplano or the Yucatan if you're shooting piles through caves. <laughs> They're helping developers reduce project risk and increase yield and keep their solar assets magically clean and productive. But hey, you don't have to take my word for it. You could set up a meeting with me or a lion, or if you'd like a discount to the show, you can hit me up. I can arrange all of the above. In the meantime, 
You can learn more about Alliant at alliantenergy.com. That's a lionenergy.com. All right. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Hope that you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Chris Thompson. Well, to say that today's guest is a seasoned energy and power systems executive is perhaps an understatement. With over 20 years of diverse global experience on the cutting edge of the energy business, Chris Thompson has seen and tried a lot of different business models from manufacturing and product development in microgrids, UPS and data centers over to solar and storage inverters. Chris has honed strong instincts in product commercialization and launching new technologies. He has the dual edge of both a academic from the dual engineering side and business acumen with a top tier MBA to boot that have enabled him to thrive across product categories and markets. Chris was most recently employed at Eton, where he was the GM of the Grid Power Business Unit and the Solar and Storage Inverter Global Product Line Manager. But he left in mid 2017 to form Ipsum Power, consultancy focused on solar storage and power electronics development. He now flies around the world advising startups and anyone else who will listen on how to bring storage into the mainstream. And I finally, at long last, have gotten a chance to catch up on a rare long layover, we might say, back in the States. Chris, welcome home. Thanks, Nico. Glad to be part of the show. You know, I've been longing to have someone with deep inverter industry and sort of power electronics, power conditioning industry experience, because I feel like that is the segment of our market that really is going to transform in meaningful ways over the coming months and years. And I say months because I think 2018 is going to be a breakout year for storage and for power electronics in general. Along with that, would you give the audience a sense of how this all really came about for you? What's the inception story, if you will, that got you into renewables in particular, but it got you interested in tinkering with the way electrons flow? I came out of grad school and joined a company called American Power Conversion. And uh, this was kind of in the early 90s. It was an exciting time in a, a rapidly growing company. And they really dominated the segment of data centers and UPSs. And that's really where I you know, learned a lot about power systems, power system design, and kind of was my initial foray into storage. You know, in, in those cases, it was you know, lead-acid batteries, and it was pretty singular in its use case. And after being with that company for a while and doing a few overseas assignments, I kind of changed gears after my MBA and joined a venture capital firm. The timing was kind of interesting because it was 2001, which was a terrible time to graduate from business school because the, the dot-com bubble had just popped. Yeah, I think things were pretty bad in terms of the recruiting scene that year. Yeah. And even before 2001, there had been kind of an interesting growth in clean tech investing. You know, so, so back when the internet bubble was happening, there was a lot of things going on in fuel cells and we thought, you know, someday people could be driving fuel cell cars and, and those kinds of things. And so I, I joined a, a small venture capital firm in 2001, and, and one of their focuses was on clean tech. And so I like to, you know, joke and laugh at myself a little bit in that I was kind of looking at solar and storage, you know, long before it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, sometimes venture capitalists like to talk about the, the ones that got away. Actually, one of the companies that I looked at uh, was SunPower. So Dick, Dick Swanson was leaving Stanford at that time, or if he was leaving, but was, was kind of looking to launch his company. You know, that was one that I reviewed and unfortunately passed on at the time. From an investor perspective. That was when he was going out and, and trying to raise money as a small venture-backed wow. startup. And I looked at the deal and that was when TJ Rogers came in from Cypress Semiconductor. 
and and basically you know almost looked at the deal on the spot and and signed them up and uh, I think any of the venture capitalists at the time were unable to move as quickly as TJ did and uh, you know in hindsight he was he was true to his word he he really helped them a lot and, and launched them into understanding how to process silicon and opening facilities in the Philippines. And uh, I, th- I think was an interesting strategic investor, particularly for SunPower at the time. You know, that was a time in clean tech where there was lots of new alternatives coming around on, on solar, different types of modules, chemistry, different types of thin films and concentration going on, you know, really before solar had, had grown quite a bit. And, and at the same time, there were all kinds of battery companies. Nowadays, we tend to talk a lot about lithium batteries, but there were flow batteries and various you know, derivatives of lithium batteries at the time. So I would say, you know, going back probably 2001 was when I really started digging into the, the various types of technologies. This is before APC? Yeah, so this was after APC. So I, I did engineering grad school, joined APC for about a decade, uh, then went yeah. to business school. And then after business school, kind of made that change to go into venture capital. We did invest in one battery company at that time. It was a, a company called A123. It may not be a name that, that's too well recognized anymore, but it was a company that had an interesting... Those of us who have been around a while recognize A123 for sure, the darling storage industry. Yeah, exactly. So, so, the, so the name A123 is after the, the molecule that, that was invented as part of that technology. And it was, uh, I, I think, you know, a leading technology uh, professor, Chang, out of MIT. And the company was actually in part founded by a colleague or a former colleague of mine from American Power Conversion. And so, you know, that was an interesting case, but and also an interesting learning opportunity because they had a, a great technology. And this is one of the first times that lithium batteries were going into power tools. And, and I remember, you know, trying some of those at the time and, and how powerful they were and, and being worried that people were going to dislocate their shoulder when they tried <laughs> using this type of battery on a power tool. They went public in uh, 2008. I think they had about a billion dollar valuation at the time. I remember and, it well. Yeah. And, and that was that was great for, I, I think, some of the, the early investors and the venture investors. But then I often say that any battery company is one production issue away from bankruptcy. And unfortunately, that was the case for A123. More recently, Samsung has been able to prove me wrong on that. And despite some battery issues, they've been able to, to hang in there, I think, and, and push through with that. So you're straight out of business school. You're an associate at an investment firm doing venture capital, private equity into these early stage development companies. And many of them, it sounds like we're looking at clean tech or you guys, you were looking at clean tech as part of the fund. How did you transition from there into being a power company executive? I mean, was it something where you guys invested in a company that you ultimately ended up being on the board of? Can you walk me through that? Yeah. So, so I'd, I'd been there for about four years and really liked the learning pace, you know, being at venture capital, you, you know, you look at hundreds and hundreds of business plans and in our fund, we were, you know, maybe doing a few deals a year. I enjoyed it a lot. And then I always say, you know, in venture capital, there's often a lot of discussion about the successes and people, you know, like to talk about the, you know, the ones that went public and, and the ones that are probably more interesting. But the other thing you learned, I think, in venture capital is you learn how to fail because a lot of your portfolio is not going to do as well as you expected. You know, you learn from your success, but you learn a lot from your failure. And I've often said, you know, I've, I've you know, well qualified for some jobs, maybe because I've failed more than anybody. And that's something that you, uh, you, you do learn those hard lessons from. But then uh, I got a call from a company up in Canada, it was Xantrix Technology, in some, some interesting circumstances at the time, they're, they're looking for a new VP of engineering. And I remember kind of talking to somebody there and they said, you know, what do you think would make you well qualified to run engineering at a company like this? And I said, well, actually, I would run it just like a venture capital fund mm-hmm. where I wouldn't just look at the technology, but I would look very carefully at the markets 
and the accessibility of the markets and if we could really be successful in the overall product market fit. And so if you want an engineer to run it who's just a good engineer, then I'm probably not a good fit. But if you want someone to run it and, and to give it more from the business, then it may be a better candidate for it. And so, yeah, so I, I left venture capital enjoyed my, my time there, then kind of went back into industry, into operating roles. So that was a one to 05 that was, you know, kind of dabbling in renewables. Some of the investments that we did had, had nothing to do with renewables. We did one interesting company in, in Boston called iRobot, which mm-hmm. kind of pioneered the Roomba vacuum cleaner. And they also went public and they had one of their robots ring the bell on the stock exchange one day. But, you know, heading up to Xantrox, they had a pretty large portfolio, but one of the, the portfolio strategies up there was really to focus on the areas that were growing and that had you know uh, unique opportunities for the company and, and looking a little more carefully at the other segments that we had that weren't growing too well so we invested a lot in solar and you know, at the time a little bit in wind as well and and that was what ultimately helped to to grow the company and ultimately led to an acquisition by schneider electric for uh, for a for i think just about half a billion dollars in uh, in 2008 now, Santrix at the time wasn't only focused on solar inverters, if I recall. They had a quite large market for wind inverters as well. Can you tell me a bit about how uh, Xantrix evolved as a company and where, like, it, it was around the time, I mean, I got into the solar industry around the time that you were at Xantrix. I recall that we had uh, several folks in common over there. Can you tell me about the story that we talked about with GE? Yeah, so Xantrix, the origin story was, was kind of interesting there. It, it was a roll-up of a handful of companies. And for those, you know, like you have been around in solar for a while, you might remember the Xantrex name or some of the other product names that they bought because they were really big in off-grid solar, which is interesting to see how much it's coming back. But the, the original solar inverters were often tied to batteries, you know, 24 and 48 volt, you know, car batteries at the time. Right, right. But it was a roll-up of a handful of companies. One of them that was acquired by the portfolio was Kinetech Wind, which is out mm-hmm. of Livermore, California. And so if you go through Altamont Pass, you'll see hundreds of smaller wind turbines by today's standards. And those were all powered by Xantrex or Kinetech wind inverters at the time. And then Xantrex went public. The other interesting side of it was, you know, so Enron went bankrupt. And Enron had bought a wind company, which was uh, former U.S. Wind or Zon. You know, in hindsight, I think it was a very, you know, strategic and shrewd move by GE. They picked it up out of Enron, I think, for pennies on the dollar and really turned it into a very powerful global platform. But I think what helped them so much at that time is that 1.5 megawatt wind turbine that they acquired through that process, it actually had about 20 or 30 years of field experience. And and particularly in wind and many of these segments, being able to have a a tried and proven platform is just uh, really critical to success. I'm curious from your perspective, coming in 2005, 2007, you're losing the wind aspect of the business. You're competing with some disgruntled engineers, as I recall. Uh, that I mean, there's a whole back, there's a whole backstory we don't have time for, frankly, for this interview. And other people have covered it. But from your position as the VP of Engineering Product Development, how do you handle and then ultimately have what might some might consider a success, a transition into uh, a, you know a successful Xantrex solar inverter business that ends up getting rolled up to one of your previous companies? Yeah. So you know th- those. Couple of years, I would say, were were pretty challenging. You know, when I walked in, it was kind of a handful of, of separate engineering teams with different focuses. Some was on consumer, some was on programmable power supplies, motive applications, and you know, there were a lot of tough decisions at that time. And you know, what are the right segments to be in? Which were the ones that were growing? It was a large process of taking you know three or four separate engineering teams and trying to come up with a harmonized roadmap, and then really trying to get buy-in on which of the segments that were most likely to grow. 
you know, and then there were some segments that we really had to rethink about our engineering footprint and, and where we did it and if we could do it cost competitively. You know, there are some segments that we exited at, at the time. Residential solar was one of the ones that we focused on quite a bit and had a lot of growth. And I, th- I think in 05 or maybe not in 05, maybe by 07, we were pretty close to being tied with SMA for residential market share. And of course, uh, Schneider came in and bought the company in 08. You know, one of the interesting things about solar, or at least in the solar inverter business, and this is true for a lot of segments within power conversion, is there's a lot of technological overlap. And so one of the observations that I had at Xantrex pretty quickly after being in there is there's a lot in common between a solar inverter and a UPS. If you think about the key components, capacitors, I can see that, yeah. IGPTs, all these things. I, I like to say same ingredient, you know, bread and, and cake probably have a lot of the same ingredients into them. So I always kind of had this nagging concern in the back of my mind about when APC or one of the big UPS companies decided to get into solar. Because, you know, and solar would be excited about, you know, selling a thousand small systems. And mm-hmm. in the UPS business, you, you know, the, the numbers were typically in the millions. And so the, the scale, the volume, and the overall maturity of the industry were just dramatically different between the two. And then I remember, I think it was uh, well, maybe spring of 2007, I was at a, a Sandia conference and, and gave a talk on solar inverters. I forget, forget what the specific topic was. And then shortly after the conference, I, I ran into an old colleague from APC. I, I had this, this sinking feeling in my stomach like, uh-oh, you know, the, the big guys are here. They're starting to pay attention to this, this little niche solar industry. But, you know, that night over some drinks in the Albuquerque sunset, we had some, some good dialogue and realized that they... Hadn't really done too much as far as product development, but really just uh, evaluating the market and you know potential opportunities in it. You know that, that kind of started the dialogue with Schneider, and then over time that blossomed and ultimately led it to an acquisition. That's a very fortuitous position to have been in, and obviously uh, from there you were able to springboard to advanced energy and first solar, most recently Eton. What I'm curious to know is as you've spanned this industry and you began to sort of grow and de- or deepen your expertise, it seems like power storage has surfaced as one of the areas where you feel particularly, I'd say, compelled to, to find solutions. So my question to you with regard to that is, what problem today, you, you've started Ipsum, and I'd love to know what problem you're trying to solve today. Basically, a lot of the work is on commercial product strategy and technology due diligence. A lot of the work, you know, not all of it, but a lot of the work is kind of for earlier stage companies, not always an early stage company, but maybe an existing larger company who's trying to think about their strategy for getting into these segments. So, you know, the classic case, you know, when I joined Eaton, big company, but they had no experience in terms of getting into the segment and they hired me to start that process. So sometimes, you know, there's small companies that have a new technology that they want to commercialize and they need, you know, maybe some advising on on go-to-market strategy or assistance providing strategic partners. In other cases, it's, it's big industrials who are trying to look at you know, how they could expand existing adjacent product lines and maybe get into solar and storage. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I fully admit that I think I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, some days, but I, I've watched how prices dropped in solar and how, you know, incredibly it's competitive it's become on a global basis. And I really think storage is kind of doing the same thing. And the overall combination and, and synergy between storage is, is going to be very powerful. And I, I think, you know, in, you know, future grids, developing regions of the world, you know, they're going to look at putting in, you know, phone lines and poles and telephone, I'm sorry, telephone lines, electrical lines is a very primitive way to do it. And just, you know, distributed generation, especially with solar and storage is going to help. I'll probably come back around to that, but I'd love to know, as you have been obviously in lots of communication and conversation with folks that are exploring storage, 
What are the common misconceptions you find customers just don't understand with regard to storage? I think the first thing on storage that makes it, you know, you dif- you know, different from solar. And I'll often, you know, kind of preface it a little bit with the comparison to solar because a lot of people are coming out of solar into storage. But if you think about the use case for solar, it's pretty singular in the use case. It's that, you know, you're generating solar, you can't really control when you generate it and you put it into the grid. And often projects are being financed, they get a 30-year PPA of some sort. Now, when you look at storage, the use case is very diverse. So it's hard to say like, you know, what is the use case for storage? It could be any one of a dozen use cases. And the use cases may vary. It's going to be a function of the size of the project. It could be a function of you know, the geographic location. You know, you'll find some regions of the country, you know, so maybe on the East Coast, you've got like PJM, and they kind of pioneered, you know, frequency regulation and the red signal. You know, you may go to Texas, and there may be frequency regulation, but it's, it's asymmetric, or they've got you know, different tariff structures in there. As you look at the use case for storage, it's much more complicated. And the other thing I think with storage as well is that you're typically looking at merchant rates instead of fixed rate PPAs or some you know, kind of deterministic payment structure. And so there's a lot of risk in terms of you know, not just the technology risk, but also you know, the, the merchant risk, the financing risk, in many cases, the overall performance risk in terms of how the system performs you know, relative to the, you know, the expected function that they're trying to get out of it. Yeah, and I'll give you an interesting example. So I've had storage projects where you need to guarantee performance on some type of, you know, step attribute of the system, you know, down to the milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you know, you're signing up for some type of LD saying, you know, I'll, I'll hit some set point within 100 milliseconds. And so you're really dialing in things very tight and proving that and demonstrating that can be very hard. But some of these storage projects, that's the level of detail that they're getting into. Are peaker plants, the relevant comparative power technology here, are, are they held to such strict uh, standards of milliseconds or minutes? <laughs> no, no. So I really had my eyes open working on uh, one of the Aliso Canyon projects last year. We kind of had partnered with a company called Powin to do eight megawatt hours. And, and I remember going and visiting the site. You know, sometimes you, you just kind of see it and it becomes tangible when you have certain visceral reactions. And I walked into the building or I was, I was driving approaching the building I kind of thought I had the wrong facility because it just was completely quiet. There's nothing there. I didn't even see any cars parked into it. So I I didn't know if this was like, you know, a power plant. And and I remember, you know, driving into the driveway and I I looked at the pavement and I saw an eight-inch strip of fresh pavement going across the driveway. And I said, you know, know, maybe someone just buried a medium-voltage cable there. And, and so I, I drove in and, and it did happen to be the site. It's, it's an Irvine. You know, but, but the thing that, that really hit me was, you know, there's absolutely no audible noise. There's no pollution. It doesn't use any water. These can be sited with a great deal of flexibility. And, and then I use the example of what I call minutes to milliseconds. You know, you know the, the best peaker plants think about life in terms of minutes. Like I can go from 10% to 90% in, in six minutes. And that's like the right. best aeroderivative peaker plants. Right. And that's if the peaker plant is like ready, standby, kind of hot, ready, you know, ready to roll. Yeah. It counts things in milliseconds. So it's not like, hey, we've improved things a little bit. It's we're, we're improving things by multiple orders of magnitude. And so if storage, you can hit the set point so quickly and, and so fast. Like I think Tesla announced, you know, a little while ago, the, the Australia plant, you know, did, you know, some response in 140 milliseconds. And, and that's just, that's just very typical. The time constant on most inverters is like tens of milliseconds. So when we have to do a guarantee of hundreds of milliseconds, like we think that's easy. These things are just happening so fast. It's, it's mm-hmm. a solid state system, you know, real-time digital control loops. They just are going to always move and perform so much more accurately and so much more precisely than a mechanical system. And of course, they could regulate up and down. You, you can never spin a generator backwards, yeah. charge or, or discharge a battery. So if you want 40 meg of regulation, 
You just need 20 meg of battery. How does that work? Just for the lay person that doesn't understand storage at all, if you want 40 meg, you can use 20 meg. Can you walk me through that? When you have a, a 20 megawatt battery, you can either discharge at 20 megawatts and provide 20 megawatts onto the grid, or you could recharge. So you could take 20 megawatts off the grid. So you, so you have bi-directional regulation. Mm. And of course, this is a function of the state of charge of the battery. If, if you keep your battery 100% charged, then you, know, you can't take 20 megawatts off the grid and, and recharge the battery at that time. And so you know, for each particular use case, your controller is going to try to run the battery at a particular type of state of charge so that it can regulate in, in both directions. And now, t- typically, when you're looking at like frequency regulation sim- signals, that they try to make them relatively uh, energy symmetrical. And what that means is, you know, kind of regulating up about as much as they're regulating down. I, I think that isn't really always the case. But if you just make sure, you know, you don't keep your battery at 100% state of charge, then you often have the opportunity to regulate in both directions. I've seen data from projects in the past that we've worked on where a small grid, there's one case we worked on a project in Alaska, and that site could be seeing hundreds of short cycles per day. You know, maybe charge for three seconds, discharge for two seconds. And so it's, it's a pretty you know, dynamic real-time system. You know, and then contrast that with solar, which tends to kind of rise slowly and run all day and then come down slowly at night. A lot in common between the two, but also I do think uh, storage yeah. tends to be you know, quite a bit more complicated, both on the technology yeah. and the controls and the, and the use case. So I think it's fascinating that in the last quarter, not only you, but other notables like Danny Kennedy have proclaimed the sun setting, as you put it in your article, on gas peaker plants and batteries yeah. <laughs> basically replacing them. Can you explore a little bit more? And I'll, I'll direct certainly the audience to read an article you wrote in September about uh, the sort of the 10 reasons. And the first one is that minutes to milliseconds and bidirectional regulation. Anything else you'd like to add from that perspective? Yeah, so you know, you know, some of the topics, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, talking about the Liso Canyon project. Mm-hmm. You've got the performance attributes of it. You've got the fact that it, it doesn't make any audible noise. There isn't emissions. Water usage is becoming, I think, a bigger issue in some locations in particular. Yeah. When you think about all of those things, and also the, the other benefit is with storage, is it can be quite modular in size. So yeah. derivative turbine engines tend to be pretty big and chunky, where if you say in storage, I need something that's 24 megawatts, you can go size it in two megawatt blocks and get yeah. exactly 24 megawatts, where you just don't have that type of a fitting function. One of the other elements of storage in particular that I think has become a real buzzword and I'd like to get your perspective on is this notion of resiliency. With all of the natural disasters, not just here in North America, but around the world, this notion of resiliency is becoming even more important and it's rising to the surface of now policy decisions, etc. So you've just gotten back from Southeast Asia and you're flying around looking at the Middle East and Asian markets as well as North America. How would you characterize the notion of resiliency as it relates to the current conversation with storage? I think the first thing about resiliency, and this is something that I've seen you know, for, for, for 20 years going back to when I was working in data centers and doing backup power systems, it's very hard to always monetize or enumerate the value of resiliency. And so it's kind of, you, know, you talk to someone about their home and they think about a backup generator, it's hard to like enumerate very crisply and clearly what is the value of having a backup generator maybe it's a certain amount of inconvenience right but i think because of the number of just natural disasters that we've had it's one of those things that is easier to value once you've experienced it and we're going through a situation right now where many locations have experienced it and and though it's hard to always numerically determine how much it's worth and how much it costs i think people are just really being able to understand now that that it is uh, something that's that's real 
and something that needs to be prepared for. And, and I think this really you know, plays in well to the whole uh, positioning of distributed generation, because in many regions, the, the issue, and, and I think they've determined this in, in a lot of, you know, especially with some of the evaluation that they've done at the Department of Energy and FERC recently, is that when we're losing power, it's not because of the generator. It's usually because of what happens between the generator and the load. And that basically starts pushing us in the direction of saying, you know, having centralized generation that's really dependent on heavily on transmission and distribution is probably going to be less resilient than pushing generation closer to the load, whether it's, you know, utility scale power plants that may be a few miles away from you or whether it could be, you know, solar that you happen to have on your whole rooftop, but pushing it closer to the end use, allowing it to be something that's, you know, a little bit independent of the fuel and then also has some layer of energy storage in there are all things that are going to be supportive of the case for distributed generation and being able to promote resiliency through that. So one of the things that I think about when someone mentions resiliency is obviously who's willing to pay for it, but also it's this idea that up till now storage and certainly solar plus storage, but storage in the CNI market has been playing off of market discrepancies, if you will, this whole notion of value stacking, right? load side uh, management and being near the load, but still being able to use that stored power to have transaction capacity at the utility level. Where are we with regard to maturity of software to handle this? I just feel like in many cases, the operating systems that we're using aren't there yet. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, and this goes back, I think, a little bit to the use case. For, For solar, it's a pretty discreet use case. Now, when we're getting into storage, it's a little bit more of a complicated distributed heterogeneous system. And so you've got a storage system, you've got the inverters, but the control system is really what's going to determine how you monetize it. And that's going to be very specific, again, to the customer and to the utility structure that they have there in terms of the tariffs and what kind of services that they play for. And I think what's been interesting is, you know, there have kind of been three companies that focused on controls that have all been acquired by kind of large industrials just in the last year or two. We saw Greensmith recently acquired by Wartzilla. Right. One Energy was acquired by Dusan, I think you know, maybe it was a year and a half ago now, not quite as recently. And then the last was uh, Unicos being acquired by Greco. So we've got cases where I, I do think the software is complicated. I think it's probably hard to be a standalone company just making controls because it's a, it's a small part of the overall solution. I do think these things are always going to function better when it's an integrated solution rather than piecemeal solution with multiple vendors involved. And so I, I think the, those acquisition and that trend make sense and will help add value uh, to those types of installations going forward. One of the things that I've been concerned by is this notion that people are bidding into these markets with storage assets and there's, you know, there's profit so long as the utility doesn't turn around and cancel your contract or, 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 or renegotiate your contract so that they can share in the profits in the form of fees and invariably pushing you down. And I mean, I've had some at length conversations recently with friends who have been in this position where invariably you get pushed down to where, oh, lo and behold, your returns look remarkably like what the utility would, returns would look like. I, I wish I had a good answer to this question. You know, I, I think maybe the, the, the poster child of this is going to be the, the frequency regulation market in right? the AM over mm-hmm. the last few years. And so there are things that can happen in that the, the payment structure and the performance payments and how those are structured can be changed. And then, and also it's a, it's a merchant market and the market kind of got saturated. And, and, you know, so like any of these markets, you know, people are start bidding in and as you get more competition, the market becomes more saturated and the returns start going down. So where's the business opportunity? I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I think that the business opportunity is being able to look at each installation and understanding the multiple use cases and how you can value stack on those. Uh-huh. There are some that are at risk. We look at time of use pricing and 
I think as solar gets more penetration, you know, those time of use pricing structures are going to change. And so, you know, these are things that are always going to have to be considered. And I think that's just going to be a little bit of the nature of the market. I don't know a way of really being able to de-risk it at this point. It just feels a little bit like as an industry, and this is what I'm trying to wrap my head around, as an industry, we're using, by and large, operating systems that are adopted from utility operators to try and sell power back to utilities who, in most cases, have the leverage and the power. And at some point can begin to, as they are in PJM, control the conversation even after an RFP has been run and, and successfully awarded. So I struggle to find where the business model is that actually is profitable without it being a constantly bespoke project cycle, right? Where every project is 100% unique. Or perhaps yeah. we're just not at the maturity point in the industry. The interesting thing when I look at the last 12 storage projects that I've worked on, they all had distinct use cases. You've got kind of the Swiss Army knife effect with storage and that it can do so many things. It, and as a consequence, people are doing many different things from it. In some cases, it could be you know, capacity deferral. I've seen people you know, being able to you know, delay build out of something, managing loads, you know, being able to you know, respond to, to step changes on a large load within a plant. They've all been unique. And I think that's uh, going to be a little bit of the element and part of the value of you know, good software in terms of controlling these systems. Let's move on to a section I call hot or hype. You've probably heard this before, so I'll name a specific market or topic. You can spend 30 or 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or all hype. We'll start with microgrids as a significant portion of the future of our global grid system. Sure. So I do think microgrids are probably uh, more hype than hot right now. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm bucking the trend right there. And, and what I, I think I mean by that is I, I think hype precedes the hot. And so there's a lot of discussion and dialogue around it right now. I think there are certain use cases, you know, certain cases like military applications, places where the economic is, is really high. But in terms of the overall dollar size and progress of the market, I, I think it's relatively marginal right now. Mm. I think it's something that will move from hype to hot, but I think it's you know, probably a couple of years out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess we could think about it. You've, maybe, you've prompted me to think about it. So hot would be now investors ought to be really pouring money into this and hype would be we're still tweaking the model, so we're not going to see massive growth until several years from now. Very interesting. Yeah. So with that in mind, uh, hot or hype, the nexus of renewables and the automobile industry. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting topic. I'll, I'll call this one hot and maybe I'll elaborate a little bit more than, than some of the other ones here. You know, a lot of my work the last couple of months has been on electric vehicles and a, a lot of it outside of the U.S. And, you know, in the U.S., we, we talk about Tesla a lot, but in a lot of other countries there a lot further advanced than not on passenger vehicles, but maybe on, on small vehicles or on busing. Right? We think we've seen some recent announcements out of China and other locations that have really pushed for this quite a bit. But if you think about this high, this issue of high penetration of solar, that really diminishes the marginal value of solar. And so the electric vehicle, whether they're, they're small or large, provides an interesting case of how we can capture what might have otherwise been over generation. So we've got kind of a controllable load and we've got a relatively uncontrollable generation source. And, and I think the two of those can be mated together. Very interesting. So I, I think we could see in the future, a hey, time of use pricing in the middle of the day could drop really low because we're being flooded with solar. And then anyone with huge loads in their home, such as, or not necessarily in their home, but anyone with huge loads would say, would naturally start flocking to say, okay, this is when I'm going to recharge that load. Such as a, f a fleet owner of a, of a 22 dozen rickshaws that are now electric powered. Yeah. And, and they're not talking about two dozen rickshaws. They're talking about 200,000 rickshaws. Ah. Some regions of the world, the, the numbers they are talking about are incredibly high. And, and if you think about, you know, some of these locations, 
you know, urban pollution is, is very real. And a lot of these small vehicles, these aren't like, you know, Toyotas with really smooth, clean burning four cylinder engines. These are, are small engines that are different, maybe from a lawnmower that we have. The relative amount of pollution is quite high. The other interesting thing, especially when you're looking at the city environment, a lot of these vehicles are not moving very fast at all. And they spend a lot of time sitting around doing nothing. Right. So, so you could be in the vehicle, but you're not moving at all. And if you've sat in downtown traffic in Delhi or Mumbai or some of these locations, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's the perfect place to have an electric vehicle, which is going to have no draw on the battery versus a car that's going to be sitting there idling. And so I think there's, you know, huge potential for reducing, you know, urban pollution, but, but also overall environmental impact. And, uh, and, and I think the numbers could be potentially be very high. Well, we'll move to the next topic in hot or hype blockchain. And of course, there's a blockchain with regard to energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blockchain is refers to energy. So I think I'm going to put this in, in the hype mode again, as you might have seen, there's kind of a big announcement about uh, what did they, uh, I think in Japan, they had a, a, one of the, the blockchain um, Coinbase's was like hacked for like $400 million just in the last few days. Mm. So I, I think this is one of those emerging elements. I think we're not quite clear on how to use it exactly. Uh, within the energy space. And, you know, I tend to think that that's probably going to be a few years out. Interesting. I'm doing a fair amount. And anyone who, who wants to educate me that's a Suncast listener, feel free to give me a call. But I'm doing a fair amount of research on blockchain because uh, I think that, uh, you know, Etienne brought it up in his uh, recent interview about the opportunity to use blockchain as a registry is probably the greatest opportunity within uh, energy at the moment. And there's a really interesting article by RMI that talks about reimagining the rules of the game in the energy sector. And this was back in August, they released that. So, so there have really been some, some interesting startups in this space. The, the thing I think that sometimes we're plagued with is just kind of the emotional or intellectual inertia yeah. of the industry. So, so technologies can come out that, that have the potential to change things very quickly. But the next question really is, is the market ready to adapt and change that quickly? And often our own emotional inertia is what's slowing it down, not mm -hmm. the technological readiness. It's an interesting sector. And in the area of hype, I would say that the hype is certainly, I feel, around the, uh, these initial coin offerings and using blockchain and cryptocurrency to fundraise, which is, which is certainly more hype than not. Um, but the blockchain has an underlying technology. You know, for examples on, from this article, uh, when they ask like, the question from the Energy World Foundation or Energy Web Foundation, where to start, were just four great examples, utility billing, certificates of origin, then that would be certainly with related, what, what would we would use for warranties, for example, demand response, and this notion of transactive energy. So uh, responding to local conditions on the grid in real time and engaging in two-way price negotiations. That, and I think that transactive energy, right, this peer-to-peer -peer energy network, the area where blockchain is going to really, really open up back again to the microgrid hype being reality because until you have this transactive energy and you have blockchain or some other registry that you don't have a way for two peers or two neighbors in an industrial park to buy and sell energy from one another. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You may need one to enable the other more fully. That's right. Yeah. Lastly, a hot or hype solar plus storage as a category. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll, I'll put this one in, into the, uh, into the hot segment. I think, uh, we're seeing a, a lot of progress, on, on storage being attached to solar. I, I think an interesting observation over the last few years, you know, we've seen as solar module prices got cheaper, DC to AC ratios got higher. And then the natural byproduct of DC to AC ratios getting higher is you have plants going into curtailment. Right. And, you know, I've, I've seen lots of, you know, lots of my own past solar projects. You could have a 20 megawatt project. You know, the sun comes up, it's running in curtailment mode by 9 a.m. in the morning. Right. And it runs flat line at 20 megawatts all day long. 
and then it only you know and then it tips down at the night but basically that means that you've got all day long where you've been burning off energy where you're literally putting the inverter off of the maximum power point running at your solar modules at a less than optimal voltage so your solar modules become less efficient and they actually start turning into like little space heaters so you, you kind of dissipate all this extra energy by turning your solar modules into giant space heaters and literally burning it off and so where, where storage becomes really interesting is being able to do something on the DC coupling side. In many cases, being able to free charge those batteries and then being able to discharge it when the timing is optimal. Recharging. And, <laughs> you, yeah. You, and, you came up with that term? Yeah, I think I came up with that term. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how well it, was, it has been adopted by the That's industry, clever. but I, I call it free, free, free charging of the batteries. And it is, you know, it is literally free charging if you do it properly. And then, you know, because a lot of times what people look at with the batteries, they, they think about, the old-fashioned spark spread, kind of like the buy and sell price. And, and at that point, it doesn't really matter what the spread is because you're, you're charging it for free. It really just matters what you sell it at. And, and that's going to be very location-specific. What are the maybe two or three hurdles that we still haven't overcome for widespread integration of solar plus storage? Yeah, so I think we're, we're still at a point of understanding the maturity of storage technologies. I've uh, sometimes, you know, given use cases of, I've worked with many different battery types, and if I've worked with maybe a dozen different batteries over the last few years, I think about a third of those vendors have gone out of business. And so you've got this awkward situation where you could be stranded with you know, a 20,000-pound you know, pile of lithium, um, or lithium batteries at least, and, and you no longer have you know, mm. a, a viable vendor anymore. And so I, I think you know, like we've seen this happen in solar in the past you know, with solar module vendors and inverter vendors. You know, in many cases, I think you know you could you could swap a module or, or swap an inverter or something. But I think it's a little bit more complicated when you think of disposal and and, and fire risk and other things that go along with storage. So I, I think there's still some um, you know appreciation and respect and really understanding the bankability of different types of storage technologies. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing that we're still trying to understand is the the reliability of some of these in different use cases. And one of the hard things about developing a battery and why it's, it's hard to kind of be a battery startup. Say you want to prove, hey, my, my battery can do 5,000 cycles. Well, it, it's hard to do accelerated life cycle testing when it involves a chemical reaction. So maybe you can do a couple cycles a day, and then you say, okay, it takes me four or five years just to actually prove the cyclic life of my battery. And so, so understanding you know, the, the failure modes and being able to predict how long these things are really going to last is going to be hard. And people are saying, hey, we want these to last 10 years, which for a lot of battery types is, is pretty hard to do. And then understanding the risk associated that and the liabilities. And a lot of times I do think with batteries and anything, you know, with these kinds of chemical reactions, uh, 10 years is going to be a pretty long life, even if the cyclic duty isn't that very high. So I think those are some of the things that will be facing the industry over the next few years. Well, along that line, Chris, in terms of reliability, I find that for the most part, and if we talk about DG, uh, you know, not necessarily utility scale adoption, but where we can see more large mass scale adoptions in the CNI space. I feel like most installers really can't wrap their heads around yet, not only the bankability and the reliability, but the nuts and bolts, right? Put tab A into A into slot B. What do you feel are the areas where solar companies should be getting smarter around storage integration in a product offering to the customer? And probably one of the ways we could think about that is what does the customer need with regards to storage integration that solar companies ought to be thinking about when they're selling it? Yeah, so I do think because the use cases are quite different for storage, for storage relative to solar, it re- it's going to require closer customer intimacy than in solar. So if you think about a traditional solar developer, you know, that they're going to um, maybe have some, some fixed rate or just a rate and they negotiate a PPA with a utility or an off-taker. 
Now, when you're looking particularly at the CNI space, you may be looking at an industrial load. And, and I, think, I think the customer intimacy needs to be higher to understand their usage patterns and then matching that up basically with the tariff structures and how they're paying. And so I, th I think the, the level and the complexity of the cell is going to be more complicated. I think if it's done well, you can probably articulate the value proposition more clearly, but it's going to require quite a bit more customer intimacy and understanding their usage patterns in that particular geography. So does this come along, I mean, along with this, does mean that a commercial installer that wants to start offering storage needs to train their sales staff in more of a consultative approach? Seems like commercial solar is itself more of a consultative sale than residential, for example. So I'm trying to put my finger on what, what would I advise if I'm talking to a commercial installer that wants to go into to storage? You know, I, I think there's some interesting, you know, business models that have been around in the electrical industry for a while that are probably different from solar. Because if, I guess if you think about solar, like, you know, someone can maybe look at your roof and they, they, they know what the local utility charges, they can kind of come up with some payback for you, mm, yep. you know, but, but in this particular case, it's going to be a little bit more inward looking out than, than outward looking in because you probably know none of that. So there's this kind of an information asymmetry there. But, you know, in some electrical segments, you know, uh, that have been for a while where you're, you're kind of selling energy efficiency, you've got a, a technical uh, sales force who has some customer inf intimacy and, and they may say, hey, look, there's value in putting variable frequency drives on your motors. Or there's value in, in upgrading your chillers um, or, or making, making lighting retrofits or something like that. And so it's kind of being able to get inside. I've seen cases where, where people, you know, they'll do an analysis of a location. They'll say, you know, you should put in a, a capacitor bank to improve your power factor. Because if you do that, you know, the capacitor bank will cost you this much, but this is how much money you would save for over a given year. And so, you know, it may not be unique to other types of power system sales. It may be, it may be unique to solar. I think there are other related models uh, where people are selling different types of energy efficiency services where they look at these details a little bit more carefully and are able to articulate a value proposition. But, but the hard part about making that scalable is it may be very unique to you. So this is, yeah. you know, this is Nico's location and, and this works for him. I may go next door to another facility and it may have... Sure zero transferable value. No, I, get, I get that, but you're, <laughs> so, right. but you're right. I mean, I have a friend here in North Carolina who his whole, all his entire job is he goes in and does commercial building audits. He makes a really good living for himself and he, by, by telling commercial building operators and owners what's wrong with their facility and making suggestions and helping them get them fixed. But by and large, he's looking at, you know, he, he may be making recommendations on what, what type of chiller to buy or he may actually be there uh, spray foaming the outside of the chiller because you realize that it's just not very well insulated. In the U.S., right, I think we've you know, heard this term a lot of you know, solar as a service. That it's something that we know well. Um, I, I met a, a guy in India not too long ago, and he sold capacitors as a service. And, and it was very similar to the, to the model of solar as a service. He would go to an industrial plant, and he would do some analysis and say, you know what, I will finance and I will install capacitor banks on your premises, and you will pay me off of the savings. And so the customer gets the value of, uh, of having those capacitors there and the energy savings, but it's all financed through the savings of the project. And then, and then the, the developer, if you want to even use that term, yeah. is basically buying and installing the capacitors. I, it's something that sounds very, sounds very simple, but in, in some cases that, that actually works out. I don't think that's going to be a similar model necessarily in other regions. Can you, because I know, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I 100% understand that business. And therefore I know that someone listening to this is going to say, that I want to believe I know what he just said. C could you break that down for me? In India, he's selling capacitor bank. And what benefit does that provide for this industrial oh, user? Sure, sure. Yeah, sorry. So, you know, different types of loads generate different types of power factors that are reflected back to the utility. 
Mm. So we've, we've kind of got kilowatts and we've got kilobars. So this is a generic term we call the power factor. And, and generically speaking, it, it's a measure of, of the mismatch between the two of, of kind of real and imaginary power. So you want your power factor to be typically to be one. And that's when it looks like a perfect sine wave. Now, different types of loads kind of distort the, the voltage and the current, you know, waveforms so they become out of, out of synchronization a little bit. And so that basically costs more money to the utility to provide that to you. And so they end up charging you for that. So, so basically, you're, you're a bad customer, and, and it costs more for them to deliver energy to you. And so they're going to charge you, basically, because it's more, and then charge you because, basically because of that behavior. And so there are like known mitigating technologies to improve that. Got it. And so then the, the question just really comes back is like, well, what's the payback? Do I put in the mitigating technology? And how long does it take? And, and, and it's the typical, like, you know, you, you have capital expense up front, mm-hmm. and then you would save money over time. Just to think about solar, you, know, you have capital. Yeah, can I ask if, if this is a good analogy for it? So if we imagine that the grid operator is on one end of a rope, and I'm on the other end of the rope, when I pull on that rope really fast, the grid operator is going to charge me more because they don't like that their arm just got pulled. But if I put a spring in the middle, I can pull hard, and they won't feel it as much. Yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty decent analogy in that you're, you're making it more difficult for them to provide. You know, if you pull really hard, you have high instantaneous power, for example, right. rather than a slow steady load. Yeah. And, and it may be more efficient for them to deliver to you as a slow steady load as opposed to, you know, you know high levels of instantaneous I power. I see. Okay. You know, if you think about it, a utility, it would probably be easier to provide you 100 kilowatts, you know, for an hour than to provide like a megawatt for a short period of time because yeah. you, you need all that bandwidth in the infrastructure, the transmission distribution network to provide that for you, even yeah. though the actual capacity utilization in general could be low. Well, let's move along to a section I call lessons learned. Chris, what failure has most affected or influenced your career or even perhaps your life? Oh boy, uh, probably too many to talk about. I, I, you know, I, I think I would go back to you know, lessons learned in, uh, in some of the years I spent in venture capital in, in terms of you know, really thinking about when, when you bring something to market and uh, what I call product market fit. Mm. And, and in some cases, it's easy to overlook this. And you can, you can become enamored with the technology. And especially when you're an inventor or a co-founder, you become you know, enamored with your own technology. Um, but maybe it's hard to, to get the rest of the world to, to really think about that. So, so think about the product market fit. And if you're really able to solve a pain point for somebody, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, uh, and make it something that they're going to get excited about. Because, you know, starting a new company, there are enough other challenges. You just want to make sure that you're really going to have uh, that resonance with your customer. And, and I think a, another great thing to do if you can, if you can get your customers to be your investors, that, that's a really nice scenario. What has you most excited right now for solar growth globally? I do think that there's nice synergy that happens with solar and storage. I think with uh, vehicle electrification, that's basically going to enable higher, potentially enable higher penetration rates of solar than it would have been able to happen otherwise. Oh, wow. And so, so I, I do think that there's going to be this, this interesting convergence of you know, solar storage. And that storage may, may or may not be part of an electric vehicle providing the storage, but at least charging off of the solar that's going to be available. So I, I think those three things coming together are going to be pretty powerful. It, it may be over the next five years. But I think there's nice synergy between those three. Yeah, we talked about this over social media. You and I, I mean, I own an electric car. And one of my biggest frustrations right now, I, I agree with you, but I, one of my biggest frustrations is I want to drive to my parents' house 150 miles away. I got to stop and charge 
on the way there. So how do we get over that hump? I mean, what's what do you see on the tech side that's going to alleviate that pain for me immediately? I have a, a client that we're working with right now that has a really interesting storage technology. It's going to be called Microtron Technology. And, and the storage is kind of an interesting hybrid between supercapacitor and a battery. And, you know, this thing that we've really gotten latched in on over the last few years is, is range anxiety because we haven't been able to really find a way to recharge something in, in a suitable time frame, particularly compared to you know, putting gas in a car. And so, so there, there, you know, Microtron is one of the companies that's working on a technology to, you know, basically have vehicles that can be charged in two or three minutes. What? And, uh, and, and I think that's, <laughs> it's possible. You mean 120 seconds? Yes, yes. Mm. So this has a lot to do with the technology. It's, it's more capacitive derived than battery derived. And you've worked with capacitors versus batteries. It's electric field rather than a chemical reaction. You know, if you're waiting for a chemical reaction to happen, you might as well take a short nap. Right. But capacitors and other types of devices can charge basically much more quickly and, and have better power delivery. Well, you certainly are outside of my realm of understanding and expertise, so I won't drill down there. But I can tell you, I'm going to be very excited about two-minute charging. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to send you their link. Absolutely. Learning and leadership are two things that I think go hand in hand, and I find that great leaders read. I'd love to know, Chris, what book would you give yourself as a recent college grad? What book would, it, do you, would you want yourself to have read by now? Sure. So one of my favorite areas to study is uh, innovation. I think my, my favorite author is uh, Clayton Christensen. He's a professor at Harvard, and he, he's kind of been a pioneer in the space for, boy, for 15, 20 years now, probably. And his seminal work uh, was called the, the Innovator's Dilemma, and, and basically kind of looked a lot of detail of how large companies struggle to innovate. And, and, and I, I think it's still very relevant now. Mm. And I see it you know, with large companies that I've, that I've worked for or consulted with in the past. So it's really interesting work. He's done a, he's done a few books, but for, for people who like that field, it's really interesting. And, uh, and, and I think innovation is kind of one of those things that whether you're a small company or a big company, it's, it's pretty important to be able to do it well. Well, before we wrap up with our final question, I'd love to know where can people find you, Chris? How, uh, how can they get in touch? Twitter, LinkedIn, email? Yeah, I would say probably LinkedIn. Look me up on LinkedIn, Chris Thompson at Ipsum yeah. Power. It's actually forward slash, if you guys know, if you're a, a LinkedIn pro, it's forward slash Solar Chris. Solar Chris. Yeah, yeah. I, I grabbed that a few years ago before somebody else grabbed it. I love it. <laughs> That's really good, actually. Would you mind mentioning your email if someone wants to reach out direct to, by email? Absolutely. Yeah, so it's, it's Thompson uh-huh. at Ipsum Power. Dot com. That's I-P-S-U-M-P-O-W-E-R.com. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see, Chris, happening in the market? Perhaps nobody else is tracking. What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, well, maybe I answered that question already earlier. I, I, I think the, the, the convergence of electric vehicle electrification, uh, storage, and solar is, is going to be those three things that come together in a pretty powerful way over the next few years. Yeah, I think you're right to say that that is something that not many are tracking. I think folks are naysayers and not tying together that solar will grow as electrification grows. After spending some time you know, outside of the U.S. over the last few months, I, I think, quite frankly, that the U.S. is behind quite a bit on vehicle electrification. You go to other regions, I think they're pursuing this a lot more aggressively. And it's a lot more than the vehicles. The infrastructure is, is pretty important to go along with it, really, to, mm. to enable it. And so I think in the U.S., you know, there's a lot of focus on, on, on Tesla and a lot of visibility to that. So perhaps your bold prediction is that Asia will vastly outpace the U.S. in vehicle electrification and integration with renewables. So that's already happened. That, that, that's not a prediction. That's already happened. That, that, that's, that's, uh, that's like 2016 or 2017. So 2016, Nico. But, but if, if, you do, if you do look at Asia, they, they look at it very strategically. Well, Chris, if that and any of these other things do come about, we'll certainly 
engage you in future conversations around how we can be better prepared for it. Chris Thompson is principal at Ipsum Power. I really am grateful that you've spent some time with us today, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. It was a pleasure. If you like this information on storage, you won't want to miss Tuesday's Tactical Tuesday with Fareed Zakaria of JLM, as well as Dan Nordlow of NSYNC Energy. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.